Today's scripture is from 1 Chronicles 29, 1 through 20. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Then King David said to the whole assembly, My son Solomon, the one whom God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. The task is great because the palatial structure is not for man, but for the Lord God. With all my resources, I have provided for the temple of my God. Gold for the gold work, silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, iron for the iron, and wood for the wood, as well as onyx for the settings, turquoise, stones of various colors, and all kinds of fine stone and marble, all of these in large quantities. Besides, in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple of my God. Over and above everything I have provided for this holy temple, 3,000 talents of gold, the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for the overlaying of the walls of the buildings, for the gold work and the silver work, and for all the work to be done by the craftsmen. Now, who is willing to consecrate himself today to the Lord? Then the leaders of families, the officers of the tribes of Israel, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds, and the officials in charge of the king's work gave willingly. They gave toward the work of the temple of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. Any who had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the temple of the Lord in the custody of Jehiel the Gershonite. The people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor, for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You're exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and we praise your glorious name. But who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. And we have uh, given only what comes from your hand. We are aliens and strangers in your sight, as were all our forefathers. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. O oh Lord, our God, as for all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name, it comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. And all these things I've given willingly and with honest intent. And now I've seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. O oh Lord, God of our fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep this desire in the hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal to you. And give my son Solomon the wholehearted devotion to keep your commands, requirements, and decrees and to do everything to build the palatial structure for which I've provided. Then David said to the whole assembly, Praise the Lord your God. And so they praised the Lord, the God of their fathers. And they bowed low and they fell prostrate before the Lord and the King. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thank you. You may be seated. Well, we're finishing up our series in the life of David this morning, and I have to say, I have loved being in these texts, being in First, Second Samuel, and now First Chronicles. I've loved looking at the life of David. What I love is uh, the graciousness that God shows us in giving an honest depiction of David's life. And then when you study his life, you realize that he's not one or two-dimensional, that he's not just all good or all bad, but he's three-dimensional. He's like us. There's a complexity to him that he has got a lot of good, but he's also got a lot of bad. And he has some really beautiful things that he's done, but there's some ugly things that he's done as well. That David, he lived a very complicated life. And today we're going to see how that life ends. And if you're new uh, to this series or if you're new to the Bible, David was the second king over Israel. And David ruled for, from the age of 30 to the age of 70, about 40 years. The first 20 years of David's reign were an unparalleled success. His faith was steadfast. His leadership was revered. The people loved him. All of his military endeavors were successful. Under his reign in those first 20 years, the kingdom of Israel expands from about 6,000 square miles to 60,000 square miles. And so it is just nothing but flourishing and goodness, like his stock is just going up and up and up. And then David falls around the age of 50. And when I say he falls, I mean he falls very hard. And Pastor Chad preached on this a few weeks ago. But what David does is he ends up sleeping with another man's wife. He gets her pregnant. And then he tries to cover up his sin by arranging for her husband to die in battle. And that whole uh, fiasco was a dark season, but it really, it was a turning point in David's life. And what happened there, if you, if you read through Second Chronicles and beyond, you'll see it cast a, a long and looming shadow over the second half of David's reign, over the, the next 20 years. The shine wears off, the new car smell, you know, of David's kingship begins to fade. He's chased from his palace in those 20 years. He's on the run. The kingdom suffers through a civil war. David ends up burying three, really four of his sons. And when you get to the end of 2 Samuel, it seems like David's life, which started so well, is going to end like so many people's lives who started so well in tragedy, you know, in a, in a tattered legacy. It seems like David's just going down, down, and down, and he's going to fade out. And then you come to 1 Chronicles 29. And what we have in this text, it is David's last act as king. Actually, at the end of this chapter, we're told of David's death. And what David does here in 1 Chronicles 29, you know, it's not as famous as the slaying of Goliath, yet it's every bit as powerful. It's of much deeper importance, and it's of much greater beauty. And what he does here reveals that even though he'd been through 20 Hard years and long years and suffering years, those years weren't wasted. We see that in his last act. And you're saying, well, what was this final act of David? And the short answer is he leads a capital campaign <laughs> to build a building, uh, which is encouraging to me as a pastor. David ended his life raising money. That's the short answer. The longer answer, uh, or to understand why this is so significant, you got to know some of the history and the background of why David doing this was such a big deal. 
one of David's greatest desires in life was to build a temple for God. And his desire for this temple, he didn't want just, it wasn't like a monument. Hey, I'm about to die. Can you build a building in my name and my honor? It wasn't a monument. And it also wasn't just simply a place of worship. I mean, it was a place of worship, but it was more than that. David's desire, and this, you can read this desire throughout his life, to build this temple. It was ultimately a desire to create a home and a place of rest for the Ark of the Covenant. That's what David says in chapter, eight of, chapter 28 of 1 Chronicles. He wants to build a home, a place of rest for the Ark of the Covenant. Now, we talked about the Ark of the Covenant a few weeks ago, but a quick recap. The Ark of the Covenant was this, essentially it was a box, and inside the box were the two tablets on which were written the Ten Commandments. Over the box was this golden slab that had two angels on it that was called the mercy seat. And what we see repeatedly throughout the Old Testament is that when God would draw near to his people, when God would manifest his presence with his people, he would often appear over the mercy seat. And so when David says, I want to build a house, a place of rest for the Ark of the Covenant, up until this point, the Ark had been in the tabernacle and they were a nomadic people. And so it's just being carried around over and over wherever they're going. Now they're settled as a kingdom. David has settled them. They're grounded in a place. And he's saying, I want to build a house where the ark can be, so that the presence of God can be in the midst of the people of God. David's desire for this ark is he wants to ground his people in the goodness of God, the presence of God. He knows when he's gone, if they're going to remain faithful, they're going to need to know the Lord and know his presence in their lives. And so that's what David's after. And this desire, as I said, it's something he dreamed about for decades kind of on his top two, top three list of what he wanted to give his life to. I really think that David wanted this, this temple, this building, to be his great and lasting contribution to the people of God. He wanted it to be his legacy. And so David brings his desire before the Lord. This is a good desire, right? And he said, Lord, and he actually says, I'm living in this great house. You've been living in a tent all these years, the ark. Lord, we're, we're settled. I want to build I want to build a house for you. I want to build a temple. And he brings this great and godly and noble desire to God, and God answers with a resounding no. He doesn't say no to the idea of the temple. He says no to David building the temple. In 1 Chronicles 22, David tells Solomon, he recounts the conversation he had with the Lord. He says, I had it in my heart, this is David speaking, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. But this word of the Lord came to me, you have shed much blood and have fought many wars. You are not to build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. I want you to put yourselves in David's shoes for a minute. This, this great, I mean, it might sound weird to you. That was his deep desires, deep longing. But we know what it's like to be a people with deep desires and deep longings. And David comes to God and says, I want to build this. And God says, no, you're a man of violence. And you've shed too much blood. And the temple was to be a place of peace. It was to represent God's kingdom. And so God's saying, I don't want a man of such violence and a man who shed so much blood building my temple. I want a man of peace to build it. And there's some debate. Was this because of some certain sin in David's life? Or was it just because he was more of a warrior? And I think you can make a case for either. I tend to lean and I tend to think that Part of the no God gives to David here 
was ultimately the result of David's sin with Bathsheba. Because after David arranged to have Uriah put to death, the prophet Nathan, you know, God speaks to the prophet Nathan and he says, David, the sword will never depart from your house. And violence continues to grow. And it's not just in the battlefield with David at this point. It's even in his own house. Whatever the ultimate reason, God gives a hard no to one of David's greatest desires in his life. He says, you're not going to build the temple, but your son Solomon will. And after you're dead, Solomon, he can build the temple. This reminds me a lot of Moses wanting to get into the promised land. And God said, no, you're going to die on the shores of the Jordan. You don't get to cross over. And what's fascinating to me about this text Instead of David stepping into his dream, David, he gives his life away and he gives his wealth away to set up his son to build the temple that he wanted. Now you might say, well, that's what a good dad does. Well, yeah, in some ways, but, you know, I was talking with a friend after this, after the verse, after the nine, and he said, you know, I could imagine me being Solomon and my dad being David, and my dad would say, well, good luck with that. You got what I wanted. You got my desire? No way. You're a grown man. You build it on your own. But what we see with David is he says, no, I'm going to set Solomon up. And verse 2, we're told that he opens the nation's treasury and he offers all the wealth and riches to Israel to the project. And then in verse 3, David tells us that he's opened his own personal treasury to fund the project. It's not just David saying, all right, I'll give some of the nation's wealth. He's saying, I'm going to give my wealth as well. We're told David says, in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple of my God. Over and above everything I have provided for this holy temple, 3,000 talents of gold, gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver. And it's a bit hard to translate ancient currency into modern figures, but we do have a point of reference here. Because a talent was a measure of currency that was tied to labor, and one talent was the equivalent of 10 years of wages for a common laborer. And so when David gives 10,000 talents, that was the equivalent of 100,000 years wages for the common laborer. And the, the commentators, they kind of, they're all over the map and some, to some extent, but they all agree that whatever David gave in modern terms it started with a B. It's between one and five billion dollars. It's important to note this wasn't just a decent check. This wasn't just David saying, I know you got a big project. Here you go. Here's a few hundred bucks to help you. This was David opening his bank account and giving it all, emptying it. This wasn't just like part of his treasury. This was all of his treasury. And he dumps it out for his son. Everything he's earned through 40 years of being a king, he gives it all away. And it's not just his wealth David gives to the project. It's also his time. It's the last years of his life. You know, if you, you go back through earlier in First Chronicles, you'll see that David, he's craft, carefully crafting plans for the temple. He's hiring stone cutters who are already going and cutting stones for the foundation. He's shipping off bronze that's going to be forged into nails and fixtures. He's doing all of this work, all for a temple that he will he will never worship in, and he actually won't even see the very first stone laid in its foundation. He's giving it all away. He gives his wealth away. He gives his life away. 
to bless not just his son, but the people of God. That's the end of his life. And in pouring out his life for the good of his son, for the good of the people, I think what David models for us here, it's a, it's a really, it's an authentic and a real and an honest picture of what spiritual maturity looks like. You know, the New Testament authors speak a lot about spiritual maturity. They, they delineate that you have spiritual adolescence, and then you have those who are spiritually mature. You have infants, and then you have the grown. And I think for a lot of us, we might acknowledge, yeah, there's something as, there is such a thing as spiritual maturity, but for most of us, it's an abstraction. Like, what does it mean to be spiritually mature? When I was young in my faith, I thought spiritual maturity meant you were sinless. And so I thought, well, give me two or three years, I'll get there, right? 20 years later, it's like the sin in my life, I mean, some of it might die, but as soon as you seem to kill one sin in your life, another sin rears its head. And so spiritual maturity, it's not sinlessness. Because the Bible, it holds forth a vision that we can actually attain spiritual maturity, and we can't attain sinlessness on this earth. So we know it's not sinlessness, I do think sinning less is probably a part of it, depending on how you define that. I would also say spiritual maturity, it's not, it's not having a lot of knowledge and knowing a lot about God, even though that can be part of it. I know a lot of people who know a lot about God that I would not call spiritually mature. And so what is this spiritual maturity? What is this vision that God has for our life? The older I get, the more convinced I'm becoming that true spiritual maturity is found in giving your life away for the glory of God and for the good of other people. That what it means to be spiritually mature is that you pour your life out for the glory of God and the good of other people. You use the blessings God has given you to bless other people. You give your time, you give your energy, you give your attention, you give your money. You look at all that you have, something that's been entrusted to you, and you say, how can I bless other people with this? I'll confess, on Thursday, I thought I had the sermon written. I had a great alliterative outline like I normally do, that I was ready, three points, of course. And I just couldn't shake some of the stuff in this text. So it just really rocked me in a way. And I said, you know what, I need to step back. Because there was one, one question that haunted me from this passage, which was this. All right, how do we as a church grow into these types of people? What we see in David here, how can we, as a body of people, embody that in our lives and embody it before we hit the age of 70 or 80? I think this is a fitting question for Child Dedication Sunday because parenting, it has this way of, of forcing you, thrusting you into the stage of life where you have to give your life away whether you want to or not. Now, as parents, I talk to so many of the parents in here and what I hear regularly is, I am worn out. No one can prepare you and nothing really prepares you for parenting. And really, life's kind of, <laughs> the way my life went, and I'm sure a lot of yours was the same, it was kind of a cruel joke up until parenting because, you know, you're living at home when you're 
when you're an adolescent and then you graduate and then you go to college. And college feels like a lot of responsibility. You know, you go to four classes a week or whatever and you work 10 hours and, and you work hard, don't get me wrong, but it's this, you're on your own and then after college, you, your 20s, it's like, man, I've got all these responsibilities. I have to pay my bills and, you know, take care of myself. And, and I remember in, in our 20s, we decided to get a dog. I've shared this before. And that was a real, like, that shook us as, as a couple. Like, this is a lot of responsibility. Got to get up and let the thing out. Got to spend like 20 bucks a month on food for this thing. So it's really expensive. And so then we decided, why don't we just have a kid instead, right? And then the next thing you know, you have a kid. Maybe you have more children, and you find yourself in your 30s and your 40s and your 50s and your jobs are more demanding than ever and your kids are more demanding than ever and taking care of the house is demanding and all of the responsible responsibilities can be utterly overwhelming. I mean, for the majority of the people in this room, you get up in the morning, you go to work, you work until you're exhausted, you come home, you take care of your kids, you take care of them until you're exhausted, you feed them, and then when it's all said and done, you maybe have an hour or two where you just absolutely veg out and then you go to bed and then you wake up and you do it all over again. And I think a lot of people don't know what to do with that. I think there are so many people that look at their life and say, is this what my life's about? And what I want to say is yes. And it's not something to, it's not something to despise. It's not something to look down upon. It's a blessing from God. And that God, his desire for us is that, that we, what, when we grow into maturity, is that we would be a people who would give our lives away for the good of others. Now, this is for parents, but it goes so much beyond parents. This is God's desire for all who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 12.1, what does Paul say? He says, I urge you, I urge you, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices holy and pleasing to God, this is your spiritual act of worship. This isn't just God's desire for us. It's one of the reasons why Jesus redeemed us, Ephesians 2.10. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is what Paul modeled for us in Philippians 2. I think it's 2.7. He compares his life of sacrifice and service to the pouring out of a drink offering. And he says, even if I'm being poured out, even if I'm about to die and the cup's about to be tipped and emptied, he says, I rejoice and I'm glad. So he doesn't just say I'm willing. He says, I rejoice and I'm glad. Ultimately, this this vision for a life, a life of giving ourselves away, pouring ourselves out. It's what Jesus taught and modeled for us. It's how he saved us. Mark 10, Jesus says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so if you... If you are a follower of Jesus, it's critical for you to understand that God's desire for your life is for you to give your life away in service to him and other people. If you do not understand that, you will live a life of perpetual frustration. 
because you're going to feel like God keeps pulling you over here and you don't want to go here. No, 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 I don't want to do that. I want to do all of this stuff. But God's desire is that we do it. And it's not just that we do it, not just that we do it out of, out of duty or obligation. It's that we do it with joy. And that's what really struck me in this passage is there's a joy in David. He's saying, I'm going to give my life away and I'm going to do it filled with joy. So the question is, how do we do that? How do we become these types of people? How do we give, give our lives away with joy, not just in parenting and all of life? And I, I'll hold before you two things from this text. Something we see in David's life and something we see in his prayer. That if we're going to be a people who really, we pour our lives out with joy and service and sacrifice. Two things. Number one, first thing we have to make peace with the unmet desires in our life. If you're going to pour yourself out, you have to come to peace and make peace with the unmet desires and the unfulfilled longings in your life. You know, I, I mentioned this before, but I've spent over a year studying David's life, and so I really feel like I'm getting to know David and, and that he's a real human being. He's not just a, a cardboard cutout. And I just wonder how hard this had to have been for him. Right, to walk in goodness and generosity and faithfulness, even when his dreams are crushed. I mean, the, the mixed bag of emotions he must have felt regarding the temple. Like on the one hand, he's overwhelmed with joy, like the temple's being built and my son gets to build it. And on the other hand, there's a deep and profound sense of loss. The temple's being built and my son gets to build it. Kind of like going to a wedding after years of praying for a spouse and God not answering it. Or going to a party celebrating a friend's promotion after you just got laid off. Like you're happy and you're joyful, but there's also this deep sense of loss. And a lot of times we don't know what to do with the unmet desires. We don't know what to do with our unfulfilled longings. But what we see in David is he doesn't let these things cause him to grow in bitterness or resentment. Instead, he makes a decision. I'm going to step up, and I'm going to be faithful. And this is what I was talking about with my dad. My dad found out I was going to, maybe I'm sharing too much about my own life, but I'm sure that at least some of you can relate to this. If my dad would find out I was going to get something he always wanted and wouldn't get, he'd be bitter, and he'd be resentful. And there are an awful lot of parents like that. And I think a lot of you in this room, you're a little bitter and resentful towards your kids. I mean, you love them, but you also don't love what they've taken from you or at least what you perceive as what they've taken from you. You feel constrained by them. You feel constrained by the demands they make upon you. You don't get to live in the house you want. The house you do live in doesn't get to be the way you want it to be. You don't get to drive the car you always wanted to drive, whatever it is. We all have these unfulfilled longings, and what David models for us well is he makes peace with them. And David, he could have never blessed Solomon, and he could have never poured himself out on behalf of his people, if he hadn't made peace with the no God, given, God had given him. And I think this is what makes spiritual maturity so hard and so elusive. It requires dying to so many of our wants and so many of our desires and so many of our longings. You can't give your life away for others while still trying to fulfill all of your own desires. Put it more positively, you will only give your life away to the extent that you've made peace with these unmet 
longings in your life. Because if you haven't made peace, what are you going to do? You're going to spend your life chasing those things. You're going to live as a person who's divided in heart. This is so hard for us because we have so many desires and our desires are so much greater than our capacity to actually fulfill those desires. One author described the human heart as a grand canyon without a bottom when it comes to our desires. That we want to be better than we are, and we want to be richer than we are, and we want to experience more things than we've experienced, and we want to do greater things than we've done. We've, we have all of these desires. And when they re- remain unmet or unfulfilled, when God says no, Often, instead of heeding the no, what do we do? We plot and scheme to get, to, to get them anyway and to fulfill them anyway. That's what David did with Bathsheba, right? God says no, and David says, I'm going to find a way anyway. And he's restless, and this is what it does. When we don't make peace with these things, we grow restless. Instead of being able to serve and love the people before us, we're constantly thinking about other things. We're tormented by all these unmet longings. We miss out on the life and the beauty God's put before us. Here's how one author put it. He said, this torment, you know, this restlessness of unmet desires, this torment is generally an undertow to everyday life. Beauty makes us restless when it should give us peace. The love we experience with others does not fulfill our deep longings. The relationships we have within our families seem too domestic to be fulfilling. Our job is inadequate to the dreams we have for our lives. The place we live seems small town in comparison to other places. The ideal we have for our lives habitually crucifies the reality of our lives and makes us too restless to sit peacefully at our own tables, to sleep peacefully in our own beds, and be at ease within our own skins. Our lives seem too small for us. We are always waiting for something or somebody to come along and change things so that our real lives, as we imagine them, might begin. And he offers this word of comfort and also a word of challenge. He says, to be tormented by restlessness is to be human. To make our peace with that is to come to peace. And we are mature to the degree that our own restlessness is no longer the center of our lives. What he's saying here is he's saying it's not wrong to experience some of that, but but what it means to be mature is you're okay with realizing that some of your desires are just not going to be met. And that's okay. That doesn't mean that your life hasn't been what God wants it to be. And what we see here with David is that his dashed dreams, his unmet desires, his less than shiny life, his regrets and his shame, they don't define him. He's made peace with it. And he makes a decision to be faithful where God has him, to give himself fully to the work of the Lord before him. I mean, he has a son in need of help. He has a family that's going to live beyond him. He has a kingdom that needs a temple. And so he says, I'm going to put my hand to the plow here. It's not what I wanted. It's what God wants, and that's okay. Number one, we got we to make peace with the unmet desires in our life. And number two, to be people who can joyfully give our lives away, we have to recognize that all of life is grace. We have to recognize that all of life is grace. This is the theme that dominates David's prayer. I just want to read a portion of it to you again. David says, praise be to you. And I want you to listen to how many times David says you. 
Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our Father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. O Lord, our God, as for all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name, it comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. Now, it's a very repetitive prayer, and I think that shows us something about David's heart. That David, as he's at the very end of his life, he looks and he says, it's all a gift. Like all of this, everything that I have is a gift. Everything that I've given, it's not actually mine even to give. This isn't just lip service. I mean, if you've been around church before, you've heard this. You know, you've heard lessons on we're stewards, we're not owners. You've heard these things. What David's sharing here are not just some principles he learned in a financial stewardship course. Like, he is sharing things that he has learned in the trenches of the last 20 years. His life. You know, he learned through his suffering, suffering the consequences of his sin, that all that he has is not his at all. And it had to be so tempting in that day for David to, to think, and maybe before the 20 years, I think that's kind of what we see with Bathsheba, David did feel the sense of entitlement. I deserve these things. You know, it would have been very easy in that day. In that day, kings were revered. They were viewed almost as gods, and it would have been so easy to say, I deserve all of this wealth. All of this needs to flow to me. David in particular, so much of what he had, in some ways, seems like he earned it. You know, he fought for it. He suffered for it. He put in long years. And it would have been so easy for him to say, you know what? This is mine. I'm entitled to this. And I'm being really clear here. I'm not just talking about money, but I am talking about money. I'm talking about everything we have in life. How often is this us? This is mine. This is my time. This is my money. This is my attention. And David looks at it all and he says, but everything's a gift. And the reason he's able to say that is because in the last 20 years, he suffered the consequences of his sin and nearly everything was stripped from him at one point. David had been wealthy. He'd been well-loved. And then at one point, he ends up naked and on the run. He loses his family, his kingdom, his reputation, his power. And it's when he lost everything except for God. It was there that he learned that God was enough. And indeed, God was more than enough. The subsequent heartbreaking years of all the failure and fading and the pain that it brought, it wasn't wasted on David. Like the rod of discipline did its work. The fire of the purifying fire when God brought in and said, no, you're going to lose this and you're going to lose this and you're going to lose this. Not because I don't love you, but because I want you to realize that everything in life is a gift. David, 
he has this fresh encounter with grace and it melts him. He sees with fresh eyes all God has given him and how God has never given up on him. And it melts him. And if we're going to be a people who willingly and joyfully give our lives away, it's not enough for me to tell you this is your duty. I mean, I will tell you it's your duty. You need to do this. What's really going to get you there is grace. Because when you understand grace, it gives birth to an overwhelming gratitude that manifests itself in a heart of generosity. When you realize that I deserve nothing and all I have is a gift, it enables you to say, well, then, shoot, how can I use this? If God gave it to me all anyway, how can I leverage this to love and to serve? And that's what David does. He gives it all away. And afterwards, he says, who is willing to consecrate himself to the Lord today? He asks the question like, all right, I laid it all down. Who is willing? And we're told, and I won't read it all, but he says, the leaders of the families, the officers of the tribes of Israel, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds and the officials in charge of the king's work gave willingly. They gave toward the work on the temple of God, 5,000 talents, 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, so on and so forth. That David pours it out, and then he says, who else wants to join me? And the people say, Amen. And as I was reading this, I couldn't help but think, what a picture of the gospel this is. At the end of his life, the king willingly gives his life away. Why? So that the temple can build, so that people can know the presence of God in their lives. When the people come to know the presence of God in their lives, and what do they do? They willingly give. And the passage ends with the wonderful sentence. And they ate and drank before the Lord on that day with great gladness. (laughs) They'd given it all away, and they were overflowing with joy. As we come to the table, we're reminded that the sacrifice David gave to bring the presence of God to the people, it was just just a, a small foreshadow of the sacrifice Jesus would give. Jesus offered his body broken for us and his blood shed for us to bring us to God. When we come to the table this morning, we're reminded of his sacrifice, that's what gives birth to our sacrifice. When we're reminded of what he gave, that's what gives birth to us being a people who give. Because when we give, we are most like Jesus. When we're pouring our life out for the sake of others, by the spirit of God and the grace of God, that is when we are most like Christ. My prayer for us as a church is that in a culture that is filled with this sense of entitlement, that is obsessed with entertainment, my prayer for us is that we would be a people who out of joy, so now we're going to give our lives away for the glory of God, for the good of the city. My prayer for our kids when they grow up in the church is they would be able to say, you know, my parents, they gave so much. They poured out their life for me, but for the church, and also the gospel and the kingdom. So if you're here and you're a believer, I pray that you would come to this table, be reminded once again of Christ's sacrifice for you. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take part in this meal, but you take part in Jesus Christ who gave everything to redeem you. Let me pray.